Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you just found yourself just saying, it's not fair? Maybe you remember saying that as a child when your parents were disciplining you or when a teacher loaded on a heavy pile of homework and you had plans for the weekend and uh, you were going to have a lot of fun, but now you had a term paper or an essay to write or something like that. Maybe you thought when your boss asked you to stay late and work on something when your children were expecting you to go to a, you know, a baseball game or the movies or something fun together. We've all had experiences where we've said it's not fair. Sometimes we're watching the news and we see that someone who the evidence sure points at them being guilty, they get off. Maybe the judge has taken a bribe. Maybe some lawyer was able to argue and twist the law in some way that they were declared innocent when really the facts seem to say they're guilty. Or maybe someone who had committed a terrible, terrible crime got off with a very light sentence, maybe a fine, maybe a few years in jail when they should have spent a lifetime. We've all gone through experiences where we've said it's not fair and we recognize that justice hasn't been served. In the passage of scripture where we're reading today as we're working our way through the book of Revelation, I'm gonna show you today in this passage that God is bringing his justice. He's pouring out his wrath and it is fair, and it is right, and it is good that he is doing that. In fact, I think as we look at God's wrath, I'm going to show you that it's something that is absolutely horrible, but it's also something filled with hope. You might be surprised that I say that. There's something good about God's wrath is what I want us to understand today, and we need to embrace it. When I talk about God's wrath, I think as we explore the pages of Scripture, we see that He has a holy anger that punishes, that judges sin and wickedness and evil. He loves His creation so much. He loves the people that He's made, this world that He's made so much. And when He sees sin and evil and wickedness corrupting it and destroying it, when people are harming one another, when there's oppressors and violent folks that are destroying others, He gets angry about that. And He says, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. And we need to balance the scales. We need to take what's broken and mend it. We need to take what's imbalanced and put it back into balance. We want to take, we need to take everything that's wrong and corrupt and make it right. We all have a longing and a desire for that. That's why we say it's not fair. That's unjust. Because we crave justice to be served. In Revelation chapter 15, Verses 50, uh, starting at verse 1, we're going to be reading through 15 and reading through 16, and we're going to see the, the wrath of God being poured out upon the human race. And we're going to witness how it is horrible. This is some of the most violent, um, sickening, nauseating passages of Scripture when, when the punishments are poured out upon the human race but I want, to, want you to also see that in the midst of this, God is offering hope 
And God is offering a way of escape if we're willing to come to Him and trust and depend on Him as well. So would you please take your Bible and let's turn to Revelation chapter 15. This is on page 1036. 1036, and we're going to start reading there as well. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels and seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands." And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is God's word. Now in this passage, I want you to notice that chapter 15 is a short little passage, but its big message is simply this, is that the wrath of God is something to celebrate. Now not... Ha, 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 look, they're getting what they deserve. It's never like that. It's never, ever like that. But it is something that is an act of worship. And it's an act of worship for several reasons. You say, well, how do you know it's an act of worship? Well, I want you to notice that there are these angels who are carrying these golden bowls. They're dressed in white linen. They've got golden sashes. They're dressed just like the priests of the Old Testament. They're coming out of the temple of God. It's described as the tent of the sanctuary. It's the the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. And as they're coming forth, they're given these golden bowls, objects, tools that were used as part of the, the worship at the temple in ancient Israel. Those golden bowls often would have water that was used for sprinkling ceremonially to purify uh, different objects and different sacrifices. Sometimes the golden bowl would carry blood from the lamb that had been slaughtered and it was taken into the very holy place of the temple and that blood was sprinkled upon the the Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel. So those bowls were used as part of the ritual and the cleansing and the worship at the temple. But those bowls were also used for another reason, and it was described earlier in the book of Revelation. We read in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, about the, the, the angel who was taking the prayers of the martyrs. And it says that it was like he had a censer, a, a bowl that had charcoal in it, And he put the incense on top of it and the smoke as that incense burned filled up the temple and it went up to God along with the prayers of the saints. And then they took that bowl full of charcoal and incense and they threw it down to the earth in judgment. That's the picture here. Those kinds of bowls. 
This is all connected to the worship of God, God doing what he needs to do to bring glory to his name by dealing rightly, dealing justly with the human race. And the people of God, the martyrs of God, they're standing before him on that crystal pavement that looks like a giant sea. It's mingled with fire, the red, the, the, the ominous appearance of judgment and fire. As the martyrs are standing there, they're glorifying, they're celebrating, they're praising God, and they're worshiping Him. Now, why would they do that? Well, you could say, well, very simply, they're worshiping God because God's just doing what God does, and He can get away with that, and we're worshiping Him. But I think there's actually two things they're thinking about. One is, is that what's happening here is justice. God is settling the score. Those who have oppressed the martyrs and taken their life, those who've judged them, those who've persecuted the followers of Christ, those who have abused the weak and taken advantage of the poor, the frail, those who have crushed and oppressed the people of earth through their own wickedness and tyranny, through their terror, through their, their violence. I'm, you know, think about all the crime syndicates, all the terrorists, all the different organizations and groups of people on earth that have terrorized other people, even husbands abusing their wives and parents abusing their children, children taking advantage of their parents. All of this is in play, all this corruption, all this violence and wickedness, it's all finally gonna be settled. Everything that's unfair and unjust, finally, the scales are balanced. The score is evened out. Justice is brought. That longing in our heart for things that are broken to be made right, things that are unfair to be made fair, the things that are unjust to be made just, that longing we all have, that's finally coming. The end of God's wrath has come. He's settling the score once and for all. There's a justice, and we should worship and praise him because that's something we all want. Every human being wants that. No one wants to be treated unjustly or unfairly. All of us long for this. But there's something else going on here, why these saints, these martyrs are worshiping God and honoring him for his wrath that he's pouring out. I think the second reason why they're celebrating it and worshiping him is because this wrath is a sign that his deliverance is coming. And the reason I say that is just all the things that are described in chapter 15 and 16. It says in verse 1 that when John sees these angels coming forth, it says that they're each carrying the plagues of God. And if you've done any reading in the Bible, and if you're familiar at all with probably the biggest story of the Old Testament, it's the deliverance of God, God's people, from slavery in Egypt through the administration of God's justice as he poured out 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. Our Jewish friends are getting ready to celebrate Passover soon. Maybe you've read through the Bible this year and you've already gone through Exodus chapter 15 and chapter 12, 13, 14, 15 and you see these plagues being brought one by one. All of them were a judgment to punish and bring justice to the Egyptians, the oppressors, in order to deliver and rescue and set God's people free and bring them into the promised land. And so there were frogs and lice and the Nile River being turned to blood and, and hail and boils on the skin of the people, terrible darkness, lice and flies, all these things crescendoing to the worst plague of all, 
when the oldest children in Egypt were killed, the firstborn died during the Passover. But God rescued the firstborn of Israel because the Israelites put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the doorway. God passed over them and spared them. And the Egyptians had enough. They were, the Israelites were driven out of Egypt and they were set free. And the Egyptian army was destroyed at the Red Sea. All these plagues, yes, they were a sign of judgment that brought justice. But they were also the way of deliverance, the way of rescue. Throughout the administration of these plagues, these bowls of wrath being poured out, you're going to see the plagues of Egypt mirrored and repeated a second time. And we're even going to see a lamb that was slain because that's who they're singing about. They're singing about the Song of Moses going back to after they had been set free. Once the Egyptian army was destroyed there at the Red Sea, Moses and his sister Miriam led the people of Israel in song. And it's there in Exodus chapter 15. It's repeated in Deuteronomy, the end of chapter 31, all of chapter 32. And it's a song of celebration, a song of victory as, Jesus, as God rescued the people of Israel and then restored them and made them a nation and brought them to a new home. And now the people of God, these martyrs standing before God's throne, they take that song and they change it just a little bit because a new lamb has been slain. Jesus Christ, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He has died to rescue us from God's wrath, to rescue us from our oppressors, to rescue us from sin, death, and the devil, and to set us free, and to make us the people of God. And now through the judgment that we're seeing poured out here. They're being vindicated. Their oppressors are being judged. And they themselves are being set free because of this. All of this is going on. This is the song of the Lamb of God who took away your sins and mine and took away their sins so that He could give them new life as well. The wrath of God is something to celebrate because God is judging evil, but He's also delivering His people. Understand that there's a lot of hope when the wrath of God is being poured out. But along with the hope, there's also a lot of horror. And we need to be aware of that and be honest about that and understand that the wrath of God is never something to gloat about, never something to boast about, never something to say, hey, too bad, so sad for you. You're getting the wrath of God, I'm not. It's never like that. It's always, instead, won't you trust Christ? that he might rescue you from the wrath of God. Won't you become a child of God by following Jesus so that you can escape the wrath of God that's falling upon the human race? In chapter 16, we'll see each of these bowls poured out. And what, you're notice, what you'll notice, it's almost, again, as I said, a mirroring of the plagues in Egypt. Those plagues became progressively worse until the most catastrophic came. The bowls that are poured out with the wrath of God, they crescendo in horror and awfulness until finally, can I say it this way? All hell finally does break loose and the final judgment does come. And so as we watch these bowls being poured out and the judgment of God coming, we see very clearly here that the horrors of God's wrath are to be expected. If there is a God who is loving and just, 
If there, are God, if there is a God who is faithful and holy, then there has to be the judgment of sin and wickedness. And we see it unfolding in detail in chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, this is God giving the command, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now when you think about the wrath of God, it comes basically two ways in life. There's a sense where we have the cause and effect that God allows sin to reap its consequences. In other words, if you choose to have an affair and you cheat on your spouse, then there's a breach in your relationship and a breach with the relationship of your children. And not only that, but you've got an angry spouse of the other person, and you have people that don't trust you anymore, and they're people that may even say, I'm not even sure you're reliable for this job anymore. And all these consequences come because of a moment of cheating, and there are consequences that come because of that. If you choose to consume alcohol or, or drugs or something like that and you become a slave, an addict to it, a drunkard, and you follow that and you allow that to enslave your life, it will kill you and hurt you physically and it will lead to the destruction of your finances and a breaking up of relationships. There's consequences to the sinful choices that we make. And often the wrath of God is just the reaping of what we sow. We get what we deserve, the cause and the effect. There are people who are living, choosing a sinful life. I thought this myself, well, it must not be so bad because God hasn't punished me. But the truth of the matter is, I was reaping the consequences even as I did that sin. And you perhaps have experienced that as well. We'll see some of that in this passage. It's almost as if the things in the environment are finally reacting to the sinful, wicked choices of humanity and it's rebelling against the human race. And it's being thrown back into the face of humanity. But all this is the wrath of God. But then there's not only this idea of cause and effect, we're reaping what we sow, but there is the display of God's wrath, his holy anger against wickedness and sin that is the direct intervention of God in the human race, where God directly steps in and does something about it. And there are many cases in Scripture where we see that, and we'll see it very frequently here in chapter 16 as well. So God has just given the command to these seven angels to start pouring out their plagues, start pouring out the wrath of God upon the wicked humanity, the persecutors of the martyrs. And so it says in verse 2 that the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Moses in Egypt was commanded to take a handful of soot from an oven and throw it up in the air and boils spread all over the people. They got these terrible sores and that's what's happening here in Revelation as well. These terrible sores, these ulcerated flesh begins breaking out, infections, terrible scabbing, all this pus, all this pain, so ugly, so painful, breaking out on every human being, every single human being, except those that are following Christ. Now the thing is, is that when the seals were broken, the scroll that Jesus was given, the Lamb of God was given, as he broke open those seals and began unrolling the scroll and reading the prophecy that we're reading now, there was a series of judgments and it affected only a quarter of the earth's population. Later, when a series of seven trumpets were blown, 
The judgments that came there affected only a third of the earth's population. Here, with these bowls of judgment being poured out, the hot, molten, toxic wrath of God, as it's being poured out, everybody's affected. No one escapes it. Everyone's falling under God's judgment because of their sin and wickedness. Everyone gets sick with these boils. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. The point that he's trying to make here is that this, these angels, they pour out the judgment of God upon the water, and all marine life is lost, all fresh water is lost. Look what they sing. Just are you, the angel says in verse 5. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The point he's trying to make is simply this, is that they wanted blood by killing these people. You're giving them blood to drink. I have to admit, that's one of the most nauseating things I've ever read in my life. I can't imagine that. The sickeningness, the nausea of listening to, of, of hearing that and imagining doing that. But that's, what the, that's what's left. There's no more fresh water. Everywhere that water is stored, every spring, every ocean, every place where, there water, where water is, it's all been turned to blood. And you might be thinking, how can, how can this be? chapter 14 we read last week about the judgment of God crushing those grapes and he says that that harvest of wicked humanity the, the blood flowed 184 miles as deep as the bridle of a horse and somebody came up to me who you know likes details like this he says well you know there's only two quarts of blood in every human being and so that would take a lot of humans to make that much blood it's probably just a hyperbole and I say you're probably right it's probably a conscious exaggeration to get across the idea of, to use another euphemism, a terrible bloodbath. A bloodbath, that's something we say. To get across the idea of a terrible slaughter. What a horrific judgment. And I think that's what we're seeing here as well. Not to minimize the severity and the pain and the awfulness of the judgment, but all the water, salt water, fresh water, all of it turns to blood. And that's all that's left to drink. How awful. And it's very clear, this is what the people deserve. There's an angel or the martyrs there at the altar of God. They're saying, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is exactly what should happen to make things right. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. Now we're not talking about, I don't think John is saying everybody got a bad sunburn. It's not that. We're talking about something actually affecting the structure of the sun. Maybe it's a mini nova, if we can say, if there is such a thing. Maybe it's some kind of horrific solar flare outbreak 
flashing across space and tormenting the people of Earth. But there's no protection from the atmosphere or the radiation belts around Earth. None of this is protecting us. And the people of Earth are, are actually scorched and burned by the magnitude of this fire coming from the sun. All the things that we depend on for life, light from the sun, warmth from the sun, water to drink, all these things are being taken away. As humanity tries to live without God and rebels against him and worships the dragon and worships the antichrist, the beast and the false prophet, as they do all of that, God is saying, I'm going to send my wrath to you, my judgment, I'm going to take away. The sun is not going to be healing and life-giving to you, it's going to burn you. The water you drink is not going to nourish you. It's actually going to make you sick. It's blood, the blood of a corpse. All of this judgment is coming because you've rejected me. And the thing is, as it's been said before, they did not repent and did not give glory to God. How stubborn. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness again, like Egypt. Again, like the waters being turned to blood, like Egypt. His kingdom was plunged into darkness, and it says that people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed God of heaven for their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. There was nothing to distract them. They couldn't see anything that would distract them from the pain that their boils gave them, the blood they had to drink, the burns that they have suffered, All of this is magnified and compounded by the darkness that they're sitting in when they can't even see each other. A darkness that they could feel. A darkness that tormented them as well. In a sense, I think God is saying, you like the darkness? You rebel against my light and my holiness? I'll give you darkness. You're getting what you deserve. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. This is a a different kind of plague because as everything is crescendoing, as, as as the wrath of God is intensifying, by the way, If everybody got terrible sores like that, boils like that, I think civilization would stop as we know it. And then you turn all the water to blood, both in the sea and in the fresh water, that would stop civilization as we know it. And then there's all this terrible darkness and all these flames that are burning us and all these terrible sores, all this stuff, having to drink blood, being burned, having the boils, all this kind of stuff. It's just getting worse and worse and worse and they're compounded upon each one. Each one could destroy humanity. And God keeps piling up more and more and more and more and more because that's how wicked and severe the wickedness and sinfulness and evilness of humanity really is. It gets even worse because it's crescendoing now to one last great catastrophic battle. You humans, you're rebelling against me. You fight against me. I'm going to allow you to be brought to one last great showdown between you and me. That's what's happening here. The river Euphrates is dried up. 
the Euphrates River is the largest river in that Mediterranean Fertile Crescent area. It's not the largest river in the world, but it was the largest in that area where John is writing and where a lot of the events of Bible times took place. It was the, the northern eastern boundary of Israel's territory at one time during David's kingdom. It was the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. And beyond the Euphrates River, this, this geopolitical, geographical boundary, on the other side of that were the Parthians. And they were mortal enemies of Rome. They hated each other. They fought each other. And it was kind of like a, a cold war between Rome and Parthia. And they would fight. And sometimes the Parthians would win and sometimes the Romans would win. But, but it never really budged beyond that boundary. And what I think John's vision is, as he sees that boundary dried up, and now armies can march across at will without restriction, without choke points like bridges and other places. They could just march across at any time. And, and then all these demonic spirits going forth from the false prophet, the beast, and the, anti, you know, uh, the, the, the Antichrist as well. They go out like frogs and they deceive the kings of the earth that are under the rule of, of the Antichrist. And they're all gathered for battle. They're, they're flocking to Israel. And he says they're going to come. And we see this in verse 16. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Now, in northern Israel, there's the valley of Jezreel. And at a point in that big plain is a highway that connected Egypt to the lands of the Middle East, Babylon, Persia, etc. And it was a big commercial route. And historically, many significant battles took place there at that crossroad, at that juncture near a little town called Megiddo. And as, that, as those battles would take place there, it became synonymous with a place, a location for a great battle. Ezekiel talks about Gog and Magog, maybe you've heard of them before, coming from the north and invading Israel and fighting against Israel and being defeated there in that area of mountains near that valley. Mount Carmel is there nearby where fire came down and consumed Elijah the prophet's sacrifice and the prophets of Baal were, were deprived of, of fire and they were judged by God at that spot. Other battles took place. King Josiah there was killed by the Pharaoh who was battling Pharaoh Necho at that time. There were other battles during the days of the judges that took place. It was a place that was synonymous with bloodshed. Even in our own country, when we think about times during the Civil War, you name Shiloh or you name Gettysburg or Antietam and places like that. In your mind, if you've studied any American history, you're aware that terrible battles took place at these locations during our Civil War. We're familiar with that. Megiddo, or Armageddon, Mount Megiddo as it's described here, was synonymous in the Hebrew mind of a place that was a real bloodbath. A terrible battle would take place there. John is seeing the river drying up, these demonic spirits going out and coercing, manipulating, tricking and deceiving royalty, kings, to come and gather for battle, for one last great climactic battle, the battle of all battles. Saddam Hussein said during the first Gulf War, this is the mother of all battles, right? Well, this is the mother, the father, the grandmother, the grandfather, the aunt, the uncle, the cousins, twice removed. This is, this is everybody's big battle. It's all taking place here. 
And everything is being prepared for that. And believe it or not, this is not just some kind of political mechanization of different political parties or kingdoms or power grabs by different rulers. No, it's bigger than that. It's a sign of God's wrath. And near the end of this tribulation period, it's all coming to a climax. It's all crescendoing to this horrific battle, this gigantic bloodbath, the Battle of Armageddon. More about that in chapter 19. We'll read about that then. But as this is unfolding, believe it or not, the wrath of God is not quite done, but it almost is. Because notice in verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne this is God shouting this it is done it's happened it's completed and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and great earthquake such as never had been since mankind was on earth so great was that earthquake the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great. He remembered all her crimes. That's what he's saying here. To make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. And no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God. For the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. You see, this terrible storm, a worldwide storm, if there can be such a thing, a worldwide storm where there's rumblings and thunders, and not only the storm, but this horrific earthquake where the entire earth is shaking. All the cities of the earth knocked down. All the mountains leveled. All the islands falling into the sea. The great city of Babylon breaking into pieces, falling apart under the judgment of God. Why? Because God is remembering Babylon's crimes. This, this image of this final empire, this final empire of mankind rebelling against God, shaking its fist at God. God says, I'm pouring out my wrath one last great storm before this last battle. And here it comes. And to top it all off, it's not just the thunder and the lightning and the rumbling and the earthquake, as terrible as that is, the worst earthquake that we have ever seen. There's also this hailstone, this hail that's falling. It says that, that hail is, is falling and the hailstones weigh 100 pounds. Now, okay, you all want to know what I do in my spare time? Okay, so in Guinness Book of World Records, in case you're wondering, okay, the largest hailstone in reco recorded history fell in Bangladesh in 1986. It was about two and a quarter pounds, about five inches or so in diameter, okay? So solid ice, and it fell. And during that hailstorm, when the hailstones like this were falling, 92 people were killed in 1986. The largest hailstone, hailstorm, that we had in the United States took place in Coffeyville, Kansas. I'm sure you all visited there. But in Coffeyville, Kansas in 1970, there were hailstones that weighed over a pound and a half. Now I've seen nickel-sized hail, dime-sized hail. I think I saw quarter-sized hail one time. They just looked like they were as big as golf balls, but not quite, maybe ping-pong balls. But I saw them once over at the York Fairground during a thunderstorm. I saw that. 
But can you imagine something that weighs nearly 100 pounds? You know how big a hailstone has to be for that? About a foot and a half in diameter. Solid ice. Something like this falling. You're talking about bigger than cannonballs dropping out of the sky. Nothing left. Every house, every city, every bridge, every building, every fortress, everything is, every palace is being destroyed. The White House, everything is being destroyed. Every castle that you could imagine. Every temple. Everything that we hold up as institutions of of buildings that demonstrate our superiority and our self-sufficiency. All of them knocked flat. All crops. All ships. Everything. Destroyed by the hurling of these stones, these ice stones from heaven crashing upon the earth and destroying life as we know it. And the thing is, in all of this, God says, I've warned you, you should expect this. Get ready. Repent. My wrath is coming. Expect it. Repent. Turn to me. Trust in Christ, the Lamb of God who died for you, who took my wrath for you on the cross. Trust in Him. You don't have to go through this. But the people of earth living at that time, they stubbornly mock God and they refuse to submit to Him. They refuse to turn to Him. They refuse to trust in Him. They reject the Lamb of God. They trust in their own selves. They worship the devil. They worship the Antichrist. They listen to the false prophet. They do all of this and they rebel, rebel, rebel against God. And they get what they deserve. The judgment falls upon them because that's what they've chosen even though God has mercifully extended them the way of escape, the way out, and they've refused it. Now some of you are saying, how come you skip chapter, how come you skip verse 15? You're really worried about that. Well, I want to save that for last. In fact, I'd like you to read verse 15 with me because you see, in this whole story, this vision that John has, we see this crescendoing, this building of intensifying, of the wrath of God getting stronger, harsher, more violent, more destructive, and all of it. In the middle of all that, it would be very easy for you and I to think, well, I'm sure glad that has nothing to do with me. I can just sit back and coast. I don't have to worry about the wrath of God because Jesus took the wrath for me on the cross. It would be easy to become complacent as believers. And yet Jesus interrupts John's vision And this is what he says in verse 15. Would you read it with me, please? Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. That's a serious warning from Jesus. I'm coming. I am coming personally to bring my wrath. This is what I'm going to do with humanity. I came the first time to provide salvation. I came the first time to bring you rescue and deliverance. Trust in me. But if you've trusted in me, don't you dare fall asleep. Don't you dare grow complacent. There are people who need to be warned about this judgment coming. So wake up, get your clothes on, and go tell them. There are many temptations and snares. You may walk away from your faith. You may feel like you, it's just too easy to give in to sin and go that way. Wake up. Get your clothes on. 
Stand up and resist evil. Make sure that you're loyal to me no matter what. Judgment is coming. Yes, I've rescued you from it. But stay awake. Stay dressed. Be alert. In the Old Testament, when someone was stripped naked, it was always a sign of shame and judgment. Don't be caught with your spiritual pants down. Don't be caught with your clothes off. Be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Be dressed in the the clothing of obedience that comes from doing the will of God. No matter how great the pressure, no matter how great the temptation, be faithful to Jesus. Wake up, stand up, speak up, be there, show up, and do his work that he's called you to do and never, ever give up because Christ has never given up on you as well. Let's tie this all together. God's wrath is something that is absolutely horrible, but it's also got hope. It's something that seems terribly violent and destructive, but it's right and it's good because it judges evil and destroys it once and for all. And in the midst of that judgment and destruction, God is providing a way of escape, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Can you sing about that Lamb? (laughs) Have you trusted in Him? Are you relying on Him for your forgiveness and acceptance with God? He died for you that you might be saved from sin, death, and the devil. He died to save you from the wrath and judgment of God. Because you see, you're either with Christ or you're against Christ. You either belong to him or you're his enemy. And God's judgment will fall upon all his enemies. So where do you stand today? Have you trusted in Christ and are you relying on him? But if you're a child of God, you have trusted in Christ. Are you awake? Are you alert? Are you dressed? Are you ready to serve Christ? And are you serving him? Are you awake and alert and clothed? because Christ is coming. Don't be caught off guard. Be serving him faithfully until the day he appears, however long that may be. God bless you for that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the great privilege of being in your presence today. And I thank you for your loving kindness and faithfulness. And I thank you for giving us this sober, terrifying warning, a warning that is horrible but it's also filled with hope. And I ask that, Father in heaven, that we would see the deliverance and justice that you're bringing through pouring out your wrath. And I pray that we would be ready and be awake and be alert and not caught off guard. Thank you, Father in heaven, that you're working in our midst. I pray that we would trust in you and obey you with all our hearts. Again, thank you for warning us that we might be faithful and cling to you and the mercy and forgiveness that you give us through Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.